well, I wanted to uh, open up today. Uh, I got to speak to um, the, the kids, and I got to speak to a few people that were here last night, and uh, we talked about uh, loving your neighbor as yourself. And uh, I'm not going to, of course, go through that whole lesson again, because um, then you guys, uh, well, that would be too long, so let's just put it that way. Um, so I don't want to go through that again, and I realize also most of us lost an hour of sleep last night, um, including myself, so I'll try not to put myself to sleep either. And, um, but I wanted to uh, kind of give a little bit of background. We did speak about um, loving your neighbor, and the message I'm going to give to you today, as you can see, uh, Love's Greatest Challenge, we're going to take that a little bit, uh, a step a little bit further. And so we went through last night on how important it is for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And part of that was in, we need to think about how we, how we think of loving ourselves. And this isn't the kind of love we're talking about as the egotistical, I'm the most important thing in the world, I'm the greatest there was, you know, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee, none of this stuff. The whole idea behind that was that we have an innate sense of wanting to take care of ourselves. We need to make sure that we're healthy. We want to make sure that we live, right? Um, we all are seeking to make sure we have food. We want to make sure we have f- shelter, that we have uh, close relationships, clothing to wear. These are basic necessities that we try to seek for ourselves. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's given to us by God to seek those things out, right? And so last night, we mentioned that how it says to love our neighbor as ourself. So that with the intensity in which we are seeking food for ourselves, then we should use that same intensity to make sure that, there, that we have food for our neighbors, with the intensity that we want to make sure that we're clothed and that we're warm and sheltered, then we want to be sure that with that same intensity that we pay attention to those things for ourselves, that we want to do that for our neighbors or the people that are around us, right? So that's what we went through last night. And so today, we're going to take that a little bit further here. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses uh, 43 through 40, uh, 45, excuse me. I'll give you a moment to open your Bibles, and I'll read here. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Sorry? Oh, I thought I heard somebody mention that. Uh, okay, so... This is the big challenge. So we, we just went through, and we talked really briefly, but the, the, the base fact of we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. But this has taken a step farther here, where now we're being said we need to love our enemies. Okay? This is a tough thing for us to do. And because it's so hard, I want to make sure that we have some clear understanding, some clear definitions of some things here. Okay? So let's define the word love here. Okay? Um, I'll take that back one step. So I wanted to make sure we had a good definition of love. And the reason being is we in the English language have one word that we use for love. That word is love. Okay, glad I could clarify that. So, but we use that in some very odd ways, right? It's very easy for us to say, I love my wife, or I love my husband, or I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the next sentence say, I love Chinese food, Okay. Now, we might take an inference and know, well, okay, those are different and they're different forms, 
But it's very hard sometimes to understand what is meant by the word love. And sometimes that can get muddled around and we're not really sure what somebody means by the word love. So I wanted to look up a definition and I went into a dictionary. And it said, a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. So that's from a modern dictionary. Okay, that's decent. Let's, so I wanted to look elsewhere. So I looked in uh, Webster's Dictionary from 1828. Okay. reason I did that is because Webster, I don't know how many of you know about Webster, when he wrote the dictionary, he wrote a dictionary very specifically because he said that God communicates through us, to us, I mean, through words. And so it's very important we know what words mean. So when he wrote the dictionary in 1828, he was doing that from a biblical perspective of how do we describe what words mean so that we can clearly and effectively communicate the words of God. So I went back to Webster's 1828 And he has it defined as a general sense to be pleased with, to regard with affection on account of some qualities which excite pleasing sensations or desire of gratification. Now, I was really surprised by this definition that he had because I didn't feel like it matched up with what uh, the biblical definition of love actually is. So I, I, I felt, well, I need to find a definition elsewhere. I need to do a little bit more. So I decided to look at the Greek language, okay, the Matthew was originally written in Greek, so let's go to the Greek language. Well, Greeks don't have one word for love. They have four. Okay? So it's, very, it's much, much easier to understand what somebody means by the, by the love thing because the word they're using. That first word that they use is storga, storga. I don't, I don't speak Greek, so I'm just kind of making that up as far as the pronunciation. This type of love is the, what's defined as the common or natural empathy say that a parent feels for an offspring. Okay, those of you who are parents understand this right away. When your child is born, there is a very natural feeling of love and relationship you have for your children. Nobody has to tell you to have it. Nobody has to, you don't have to wait to have that. It's a very natural thing. That's what is being defined in here. The next one is philia. Okay, this is the love that's defined as affection, or, uh, affectionate regard or friendship. It's a dispassionate, virtuous love. So this is the type of love you would define as between two close friends. Okay? It's not anything, uh, people aren't going to get married with this type of love or anything like that. Um, it's just a deep friendship that people might have for one another. The, other, the next word that they have is eros. This is an intimate love, oftentimes, and most oftentimes, referenced in a marriage relationship. This is what we would think of as the physical love, the intimacy that a husband and wife share with each other. That's what they're going to define as that type of love is eros. Okay? And lastly, this is the one that we're going to focus on the most today, is agape love. Agape love is defined as unconditional and self-sacrificial love. Now, this was the one that when I saw it, I was like, this is the definition we're looking for. Because this is the word that's used in the Greek, in the Greek scripture. Okay? So we're not looking at just a, a tender feeling or, some, you know, I, oh, I feel a shiagushi inside about this person. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the ability to give up our own necessities, our own needs for somebody else. And we can, ha- we, we can see that expressed in the world around us in various ways. So that's what we're looking at. And there's a number of places that we see this in Scripture. Matthew 22, 36-40, this is the great commandment, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Agape. Agape 
love is used in that. In um, love your enemies, agape, love your enemies unconditionally is what's being said here. John 3.16, so God so loved, God so agaped, that's probably not actually how it's used, but agaped the world that he gave his only son. Um, so we have this used in a lot of those scriptures. I don't expect you to uh, look those up um, necessarily um, one at a time here, but I put those up on the screen for you so you can write those down if you wanted to. These are all examples of what God is using um, in scripture as unconditional love where we're giving of ourselves or another person is giving of themselves for us. All right? So that is clearly defined. I want to make sure we have that. The other thing that's used in here, as we're looking at, is the word for enemy. Okay? Enemy, we, I think we generally have a pretty good understanding of what an enemy is. But just to be sure, I wanted to make sure we defined this as well. Okay? The modern dictionary today would define it as a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful design against, or engages in antagonistic activities against another. That's actually a really good definition of what an enemy is. I think most of us would agree. Yeah, that sounds like an enemy. I actually went to Webster's 1828 dictionary as well. I wanted to see what he had to say about it. What he said is it's a private enemy. So that's something I never thought you could do is define a word with a word. It's a private enemy is one who hates another and wishes him injury or attempts to do him injury to gratify his own malice or ill will. That's actually a better definition, I thought. I thought Webster got it right in this one. The Greek word that is used here is ekthos. Uh, That word is defined as hated or hateful and opposing another. Okay, so less descriptive is what we would use in English language. But we all understand what it means to have an enemy, okay? Um, Some of these people might be uh, people you work with. Some of these people might be uh, maybe even in your own home, uh, unfortunately. Uh, People that you feel are against you, um, who are not looking for your your well-being. And uh, these people are often the most difficult for us to deal with. And sometimes the feeling is mutual, Right? That's the harder thing for us to do is sometimes, and most naturally, that feeling is very mutual. If somebody doesn't like us, is our kind of our natural reaction is to say, all right then, I don't like you. You have ill will for me, great, then I have ill will for you. And that's how we tend to play that out in our humanity. Okay? But the instruction that we're getting here from Scripture is very, very different from that. He even states in this, says that you have heard you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what you've heard it to be. That's what you understand it to be. If somebody, go ahead and love your neighbor, love the guy who's, who's close to you, but if it's your enemy, go ahead and hate that guy. But that's not, says no, that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a much, much more difficult prospect for us to fall into. And this is going to be a lot harder for us to do. Luckily, Scripture does give us instructions not only to do that, to do that, but a bit how. So we're going to look here a little bit. Uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 35, we see another thing that says, uh, but love your 
love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Now, I thought this was really interesting that he's describing this action that we're supposed to have towards our enemies, when a lot of times when I lend to even people that I know really well, I expect things in return, (laughs) right? I mean, it's not unusual for us to say, hey, man, uh, you need to borrow some money. That's great. I'll, I'll let you borrow some money. But, you know, I need, it, I need it back in, you know, whatever the time frame is. That's not unusual for us to say, right? I know I've done that before. Yeah, sure, here's 10 bucks. I want it back, though. And then after a week, be like, hey, where's my 10 bucks, man? I need my 10 bucks. And this is with a, somebody I know and somebody I like, okay? But he's expressing that not only are we supposed to, to lend to our enemies, but we're not exposed to, supposed to expect anything back. That means somebody that we really have a hard time dealing with. Maybe somebody who has a lot of ill will for us. Maybe even somebody that, unfortunately, we've had some ill will for ourselves. If they have a need, he's turned this not from lend to them. He says lend, but if you're not expecting anything return, you're just giving it to them. It's no longer a lending. You're gifting that to them, right? Hey, man, I need need $100 I can't meet my rent. I need a hundred bucks. And I know I'm not very nice to you most of the time, but boy, I could sure use that. Okay, here you go. And no, I'm not expecting anything in return. <laughs> That's a tough one. That's a tough one to do. In Proverbs, we see this again. Proverbs 25, chapter 25, verses 21 and 22. He says, if your enemy is hungry... Give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, this is great because it gives some real proactive things we can do for loving our enemy. If he's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. But what really piques our attention is what comes afterwards is, for you will heap burning coals on his head. What? Okay, so this is really interesting. So when I first heard this, this is the way I interpreted it when I first heard this, was if I'm going to give the guy who's my enemy, I'm going to give him something to eat when he's hungry and something to drink when he's thirsty, then that's, I'm being nice to him when he's being mean, you know, and he, he's going to feel really ashamed of himself. He's going to feel terrible about the way he's treated me. And, and so he's going to feel really bad, and it's going to be like coals coming out of his head, and I got him. I got him back. He feels terrible. And that's ultimately what I wanted, is for him to feel terrible about what he's been doing. So I thought this was God saying, yeah, this is, this is the, the, the holy vengeance, man. He's treating you bad, you give him something to drink when, he, when he's thirsty, and man, you got him back. So that's not <laughs> how this works. So I had to do some research. What does it mean by heaping burning coals on somebody's head? It's certainly not a literal meaning, right? Uh, he's not asking, here's something to drink, and oh, by the way, let me go to my fireplace. I've got some coals for you. That's not what's being asked either. So this was actually talking about, back in those days, um, when you had your home, and you had the place where you would cook, you would have coals for your fire, right? And those coals, you, you wouldn't just light them in the morning. We think of like charcoal briquettes. We put them in our, uh, in our uh, barbecue, right? And we put lighter fluid on, and you throw a match in there, and woof, and there you go. You have your fire. 
it's not, wasn't as easy back then, right? They didn't have lighter fluid, they didn't have, have self-lighting charcoal, things like that. So what they would do is you would have these coals in your fireplace that were always live. They were always burning. And that's what was called stoked, a stoked fire, okay? And so we even use a term today, right? How, how many of you have ever heard of teens like, I'm totally stoked, right? Okay, that's kind of where that comes from. It means you're ready, I'm prepared, okay? And so when you had your fire stoked, it was prepared to be relit and made active again for the next time you needed to cook something, right? Now, the problem was, every once in a while, those stoked coals would die out, okay? They would no longer be lit, and it was very, very difficult to get new coals or old coals relit and the heat back on. It took a long time. Plus, cooking took a long time anyway, okay? They didn't have microwaves back then, so it took a while, all right? So what you did, if, your, if the coals went out, is oftentimes you went to your neighbor's house and you were looking for live coals. You would go over, knock on the door, hey, my, my coals went out. Do you guys have any live coals I can use? I really need some. And your neighbor, hopefully, would be generous and say, yeah, sure, I can use coals. Now, when you did that, you brought a pail with you that they could put the coals in, and you carried it on your head. Okay. If your neighbor was very, very generous, then he would heap the coals into that pail that you would put on your head. And that was a very generous neighbor who wanted to give you plenty of live coals to make sure you could get your fire relit and you could start cooking for yourself again. And thereby he was heaping burning coals on your head and he was being very, very generous to you. That's where this comes from. Okay. The other thing that we get with burning coals in Scripture is, uh, many of you remember that Isaiah had a live coal touched to his lips, right? He said, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. And an angel came by with a pair of tongs, took a live coal, and touched his lips. Okay? The other thing that's represented with burning coals um, back in those days as well was often used as either purification or healing. Okay? So, in the example given in Isaiah, it was used to purify his lips, right? Now, there weren't many times, and back then people didn't go around and like, oh, I hear you're, uh, you're, you need some purification. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that wasn't the common practice. But what people did do <laughs> is they would, instead, um, there were some healing processes that also used by, by having a contraption placed on your head, coals would be put in that, and that would cause you to sweat. The idea was sweating out the illness or sweating out the things that were causing you sickness, Right? And so this has two meanings when we hear this. We look at Proverbs, and it says, um, you give him bread to eat, and if he's thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. What is being said is that, number one, you are going to be extremely generous to this enemy of yours. You're going to be like the neighbor you go to when you need live coals, and he goes in and he just dumps a couple shovelfuls of live coals into this bucket that you put up on your head, and you're going to be extremely generous. The other thing that's going to happen is because you are serving God and your generosity to your enemy is much like those, the healing that you're trying to do is through that act, you are taking a step to the healing of that person. This is a totally different perspective on what it is to heap coals on somebody's head. We're not 
looking for vengeance. We're not looking to get back at somebody. We're not looking to make them feel bad because they were mean to us. We are looking to see them healed through God's love. Last night I told the kids that any love we have for another person always has to come out of the abundance of love that is given through us for God, given to us through God and that we have for God himself. You want to know how well you love other people? Check on how well you love God. Ouch. I step on my own toes when I say that. Okay? That's hard to do. It's hard to judge ourselves in that way. But that's the best and clearest way to, to define for us how well we love other people is what's your relationship with God look like? How well do you love God? Do you love God with your, your, your soul, mind, and spirit? All of it? Because if you don't, then yeah, there are going to be some things missing in the way we love other people. And that's certainly going to include the enemies that we have. In fact, those will probably be the people that suffer worst at that point. Because they're the last people we're going to be willing to stretch out our, harm, our arms for. I have no problem offering great amounts of love to my friends. I have no problem offering great amounts of love to my wife, to my children, to my parents. That's not a problem. Boy, I have a really hard time offering love to those people that don't treat me well. When I was a kid in uh, junior high, high school, in our neighborhood, we'd go up to the park, my brother and some of our friends, and we'd, uh, we'd get together, we'd play football and, and different games. And there was another group of kids that would come into our neighborhood, and uh, man, <laughs> we don't know why, but from the moment we first saw these kids, they were not nice to us at all. Every time we saw them, they wanted to start fights. They wanted to take our stuff. Occasionally, they threw rocks at us. They tried to chase us off with various things. One kid, one time they brought a bow and arrows, you know, and decided they were going to fire them in our direction um, to get us away from where we were. Uh, just not, not the greatest guys out there. I think back to when I was a kid, what did I really want to do in that situation? What was everything pulling me to do? And what I really wanted to do was beat them up. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to be honest here. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to just, you know, start a fight and, you know, solve the problem that way. And that's what, not what, what God wants us to do in that situation. And that's hard to do because it's so natural for us. We hear, and a lot of people ask, it's a, well... Okay, but in Exodus chapter 21, it says, well, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. So the Bible says you can do that too. Hmm. Well, that sounds pretty contradictory to what we were just talking about, doesn't it? So I thought I'd have to look into that too. Because there are no contradictions in the Bible, right? We know that. But the Bible doesn't contradict itself. So what is this saying? So I looked into that in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 21, what's being talked about in the context is um, the law is being given, right? And as he's given the law, he's saying, if this happens, this is what the response should be. Now, whenever we hear in the law instruction being given, and here's what a repercussion of that instruction should be, our first thought should be, well, this isn't for us individually to judge for ourselves. The law was given and judged by the Sanhedrin. Okay? The Sanhedrin was the Jewish ruling people. They 
uh, or like the court of that time, you would take a friend before the Sanhedrin, and then they would make a decision as to what the punishment would be. If you stole something, you'd say, hey, Sanhedrin. They probably wouldn't call them that, but you would bring them up and say, hey, Sanhedrin, uh, this person stole property, and they would go through the legal justification by using God's word as the legal precedent for how to handle the situation. Okay? And so what this was doing is this was going through what would be the maximum level punishment given and that it should match what, what was done to the person. So it's not saying that if somebody punches you and knocks out your tooth, you should go to court and seek to knock out the other guy's tooth. That's not the point. That was a guide for those on the Sanhedrin to say, that's, that's, that's the farthest you should take this punishment at any point in time. The whole purpose was to prevent things like retaliation, blood feuds, and disproportionate punishment. The reason for that command of an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth was to say that, that if somebody does something to an eye, yes, the maximum punishment that should be allowed by a civil court, a legal system, would be an eye for an eye. But you yourself are not to take revenge on that person in that context at all. And it's also not right for the civil government to say, this person stole something, we'll cut off his hand. That is a disproportionate punishment to the crime that was done. Okay? So that is where we stand on that was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? So what Scripture is really saying is, yes, does the civil government that's put in place have a responsibility to keep the peace, and does it have a responsibility to hold judgment over people? Yes, it absolutely does. Great. Let's let the civil government do that. But when it comes to us individually, we have been given a very specific instruction that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves and to love our enemies. The great thing is that, that I love is not only does God in his scripture give the commands and, and give the instructions, but as we read through the stories that he's put in here for us, we actually see the working out of those commands and how those look. And um, one of the things that came to me was the, the, the disciples themselves. The disciples themselves, you'd think, well, none of those guys hated each other. Well, when they first got together, all 12 of these guys, uh, the first two people that came to mind I thought was very interesting. One of them was Simon. We don't know a lot about Simon, but we do know his nickname. Does anybody know what Simon's nickname was? The Zealot, right? Simon the Zealot, okay? Simon the Zealot, his nickname was the Zealot prior to him being a disciple, okay? Um, it's not as God said, Jesus said, hey, come follow me. You know, and he's like, yeah, I'd love to. And everybody was like, we're going to call you the zealot, man. You're, you, obviously, you're zealous for Christ in this two seconds that I've known you. That's not the way that worked out. He was called the zealot because he was of a group of Jews who wanted to see the Roman government, the occupying Roman government, eliminated from Israel. They were zealous in their desire to want to see that happen. Zealous to the point of they wanted to take up arms and fight against the Roman government. They wanted to force them out. Okay, so he was probably somebody who was very upset with Rome. He did not appreciate Roman centurions being around. He didn't appreciate Roman rule around. He would much rather, he probably, he may have carried a sword with him. I don't know. It doesn't say, but he may have carried some sort of weaponry with him. He would rather fight the Romans than anything else. Okay, so that's Simon. 
The other person that we see is Matthew. Does anybody remember what Matthew's job was before he started following Jesus? He was a tax collector. Okay? Simon was vehemently against Roman occupation. Matthew worked with the Roman occupation. He collected their taxes for them, right? It would be the same as, we don't have a great understanding of this in some ways, right? We live in the United States, we're not ruled by a foreign government, but let's say, for example, uh, that we had a foreign government come in and, and, and it, was, it was ruling us. We didn't want them to be here. Let's just say it's Canada for the sake of argument, okay? <laughs> Canada comes in, they're ruling us right now, they have established laws, we can no longer call them America's hat, things like that, okay? So they, they're, they're ruling right now, that, so gives you an idea. We wouldn't like that. We want, no, we don't need Canada to rule us. We can rule ourselves. You can imagine if you met somebody who was saying, hey, I'm here. I, I, I collect taxes for Canada. I'm an American, but I'm going to work for the can- Canadian occupation. I'm collecting taxes, so um, I need $4,000 from you. Would that be a popular person with you? Probably not, okay? Matthew was not a popular person in general, but probably most of all, he was not super popular with Simon the Zealot, right? Somehow, I mean, it, it doesn't go into depth on how these do, but somehow these two come together. They're, part, they're both part of the 12 disciples, and I don't, I'm, I'd be really curious to know what some of the campfire conversation was like in some evenings of, regarding politics. But somehow, through Jesus' example, through the love that God has, the way Jesus leads in love, these two came together from completely opposite ends of a political spectrum, and they served Jesus Christ together, and they died for the same Jesus Christ. With these totally differing views, with all the polarizing that we might see in the United States between what it's Democrat and what's Republican and everything else, Jesus has, has given us the opportunity to come together in those political differences and love each other, even though we might view each other as enemies. There are a lot of things that people can see politically that you're just doing that to make me mad. You're just doing that because I don't like it. In some cases, it's probably very true. But we've seen, we see here Jesus has given us the opportunity to come together in those things. He brought together the 12 disciples from all manner of different areas. He also used the 12 disciples in, in, in many great ways. Um, we can even look at um, uh, Peter, right? Peter, he's, he was a Jew, we know that, but he, he gets the opportunity, he, he, shares, he shares Christ with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, right? Now, I don't know how strongly Peter felt about the Roman government that was there. I don't know how much against it he was. It doesn't define him as a zealot, okay? So we don't know if he was that against it. We do know he tried to cut off the ear of somebody. Not tried, he did. He cut off somebody's ear, which is, I don't know if he's either really good with a sword or terrible with a sword, but one of those things is true. But he cut off somebody's ear, right? So we know, he, we know he's a man who, who, who would be willing to fight if, if given the opportunity to a certain degree, okay? But instead, after he spends this time with Jesus Christ, he looks at this Roman centurion no longer as an enemy, no longer as this is somebody that I need to, to avoid or even do something of ill will to. He goes into Cornelius' house and shares the love of God with him, spends three or four days there, and 
Cornelius' entire household is brought to Christ through this. Loving an enemy. Rome was certainly an enemy to these people. Certainly. Just like if we were ruled by an occupying force, certainly they would be an enemy to us. We wouldn't be happy about it. We wouldn't be thrilled about it. But Peter takes the step and says, yes, that's true. I don't like them here. But they are here. And those same people need Jesus Christ. So I'm going to reach the centurion and his family because they deserve it. They deserve God's love just as much as I do. Jesus' love for the disciples even allowed them to reach out to groups that, that probably would have been unheard of at the time. Almost exact opposites to the types of group you would think that they would be reaching out to. Peter was a fisherman by trade. For a Jewish person, that meant that he didn't do very well in school. Okay? They would go into school at a young age. What they would do is they'd start reading through and learning the Torah. Those were the writings they had at the time. The best students would be able to memorize the Torah. They were picked up by a rabbi. That's what the dream of a student was, to be picked up by a rabbi and follow that rabbi the rest of their lives. If you weren't doing that, it means you didn't make it. So Peter was a fisherman because at some point he didn't qualify. Maybe he wasn't able to memorize enough. Maybe he just didn't have the intelligence enough. Who knows what it was. He didn't qualify to follow a rabbi until Jesus came along and said, I'm a rabbi and you're going to follow me. So who does Peter end up later in his life sharing Christ with more than anybody else but the Jewish leadership themselves? This unqualified fisherman spends most of his life sharing Christ with fellow Jews, some of which who would have been seen as having far more education and more capability than he had, and he does it with great success. Saul slash Paul, on the other hand, he was a Pharisee. He was very highly trained, very intelligent, knew God's words inside and out, knew the law up and down, forward and backward. He's met on the road to Damascus by Jesus Christ, and where does he share? Does he, does he go back to the Jews and he shares mostly with the Jews? No. God sends him to share with the Gentiles. This is the same Paul that because he was, so, he was such a Pharisee and so adamant about it that to him the Gentiles absolutely had no place in this, Jew, in this Jewish faith. There was no way that this was being opened up to the Jews. These are promises made to the Jewish people. And now his primary field of evangelism is to the Gentiles. You and I praise God for that. Because we are Gentiles. So we are thankful to Paul. And that because of his love for God, he was able to have love for what could be viewed as his enemies at the time in Gentiles. People that he was not willing to see know Christ because the promises were not for them. They were for his people, not them. But through the love of Jesus Christ... 
his eyes are opened. And he says, no, 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 no. I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, and therefore I can love the Gentiles with all my heart, and I want to see them come to know him. And he plants churches. What a glorious act that Jesus is enabling Paul to have. And of course, lastly, and this is the biggest one that we see here, um, we'll go to Romans chapter 5. And we'll look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. The first part of that is what should stand out is that while we were enemies, enemies to God, our sins put us in direct conflict with the God of this universe and create us as enemies of God. The same application still applied. We didn't want to have anything to do with him. We pushed God away. We kept him at farther than arm's distance from ourselves. God, I don't need you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. It's not important that you're in my life. I can run my own life. These are things that we've done in our own sins. Okay? None of us has not been there. We've all done this. We have pushed God away. I don't need you. You are my enemy. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And while we are still in that state, while we're still at the point where we say, no, God, stay away. Keep your distance from me. God sent his son who gave himself for us in death on a cross so that we could come back into relationship with him. God and Jesus sent sent down to love his enemies, which we're defined as. People that have turned away from him. We had ill will toward him. That ill will for him culminated at the cross. You sent your son down here? Great. Kill him. That's the act of an enemy. That God has glorified as an act of love for us. He loved his enemies, which was us. And we reap the benefit. Last night I told the, the people that were here, the kids included, last night that the culmination of everything we have in here. Boy, I've been, totally been forgetting about this thing, haven't I? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just pretend like it wasn't there. So... <laughs> The culmination of everything in here, what's wrapped up in here, everything that's shown here is brought about by God's purpose intent for all creation and for all time was for us to love the Lord our God with all all of our heart, soul, and mind and to love each other. That was the purpose from the beginning. This wasn't something that was brought out as new revelation later on in life. It wasn't as though God created the earth and created Adam and Eve and then things went wrong and he said, oh no, I better make sure I set something up so they can love me and each other. That's not what it was. When God went into creation, he goes like the purpose, what I want to do with creation, the whole purpose in creation is that I'll have people who can love me and I will love them and they will love each other. It'll be a trinity in and of itself. 
right? He's invited us into his trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. When we accept Christ, what, who indwells us? Raul mentioned it this morning. We're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. When we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have been brought into the trinity of God. And because we're brought into the trinity of God, we have the ability to allow that love we have through Jesus Christ to overflow us and allow us to love not only our neighbors, the people that are close to us, but our enemies. If we took everything that was said in here and we, we believed it for what it really was and acted as though we believed it for what it really was, this world could be a really a much different place. We only do that through the Holy Spirit, through God's help. We can't do it on our own strength. It's not in our nature to necessarily do that. And so our first step is love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. And then when we're able to do that, we're able to take the steps of loving our neighbors and our enemies. And it gives me the ability to love the people around me, to bring in our friends Sammy and Nita, our, our, our Muslim friends Sammy and Nita, and to love them, and to listen to the call of God and be willing to leave my home and head over to Spain and love people there. This is not something that I do of my own nature. It's not in my direct nature to jaunt off somewhere and leave my family behind. That's, 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 not, that's not really me. That's the, that's the Holy Spirit at work. And I don't say that because I'm bragging about it. That's not it at all. The Holy Spirit works in each and every one of us. And if we allow Him to do so, then we too, you, you might find yourself flitting off to another part of the world or maybe just find yourself walking across the street. Maybe you find yourself going over to the neighbor's house next door, the guy that you have a hard time getting along with. But when he needs a lawnmower, you let him use your lawnmower. And you know what? You're not too concerned about when you get it back. World-changing activities happen through a love for our neighbors and our enemies. Close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you for the ways in which you guide us and teach us. We thank you for the love that you've shown us through sending your son to die for us, that you've brought us back into your fold even though we were your enemies, and that anything that you have instructed us to do, you have led and, and shown us by example. And that you are there to help us each step of the way. Lord, I just pray that you would be with this church. I thank you so much for this church and their desire to serve the community around them. I pray for the, the kids in the youth group um, as they seek you, as they seek to reach their friends, their school. I pray that you would be with them, that you would encourage them. I pray that they would allow you to live through them and that they could serve you throughout their lives. We just pray that you would help us to love abundantly. Not just in those that are close to us, but you would help us to love abundantly our neighbors 
and our enemies, and that we could see the world turn upside down and be a world that seeks you and chases after you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.